Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me into your home again this week. And we have some great questions, which we're going to get to straight away. But first, I have a little announcement. So this is the newest member of our family. This is little Benson. And uh, I hope he comes across on the camera as cute as he is in real life. He is just adorable, and we just got him today from a rescue. He is three years old. He's a little Shih Tzu mix, and we are already falling in love. So I wanted to share that happy news with y'all as part of the show. All right. I thought you guys might want to know about that because... uh, well, he's a really special little guy in our life now, so we'll see how this all plays out and everything, but uh, we're pretty excited. So uh, with that all being said, let's go ahead and get on straight away with your questions. Cats, I'm curious about people finding themselves in auditing sessions where they could not leave. You have said that auditors are trained to physically keep people in the room until their needle floats or whatever the goal is. I'm really struggling to imagine what that would look like. Could the person be kept there for hours or days? Are they offered food and refreshments? Can they have bathroom breaks? If it is someone new to the group, will their phone have been taken away from them? If I were in such a situation, I think I would just lie and say I was coming back, but then leave. But would that be a possibility? I would love you to explain what keeping them there actually means. All right, let's go ahead and talk about an auditing session and the structure of it so that we're clear about what I am talking about. In an auditing room, it is basically a desk very much like this with some books and things and an e-meter and paper and pens and, you know, all the accoutrements or, or things that the auditor is going to need in order to run the session. And it's his desk and it's his office. And it's generally a little office that's about five by six feet, something like that. These are very not, not generally very large offices. Uh, they have sometimes slightly larger auditing rooms for when they're going to be doing objective processing, where they're going to be walking around in the room, walking back and forth between the walls or something like that. We've, t- you know, there's processes like um, uh, look at that wall. Thank you. Walk over to that wall. Thank you. Touch that wall. Thank you. Turn around. You know, thank you. And then back and forth, back and forth. They do those same four commands over and over and over again for hours on end. Those are called objective processes because they're not looking into your mind. You're actually performing actions in the real world. And there are hundreds of objective processes. It's not just walking around and touching walls. They sometimes will sit at a desk with little bits and pieces and things like that. Anyway, there are, there's that kind of auditing, and then there's subjective auditing, where you're thinking and remembering and talking about things from your, from your mind or from your, you know, from your memories. Uh, either way, you're in a locked room with an auditor. And generally speaking, auditing sessions, for the most part, go for anywhere from an hour to two and a half hours of time. That by far, the majority of sessions go about that long, sometimes, you know, three or four hours. But... Um, Uh, that's, you know, the average. However, sometimes it can take a very long time to get to the desired end result of a process or a sub-process. And when that happens, or when it happens that during the course of an auditing process, even if it's not very long, even if it's a half hour, hour, hour and a half, 
If the preclear, the person who's receiving the auditing, starts becoming resistant to the process and doesn't want to be there and wants to get out of there and doesn't want to have anything to do with this anymore, the auditor assumes that the reasons for that are because of the preclear's uh, reactive mind. There's that subconscious sort of controlling mind that Hubbard posits exists, which controls the person. And the idea in Scientology is that your reactive mind, or another way to refer to it, is your case, all the trauma, all the stress, all the crap you carry around with you and have been carrying around with you for endless trillionia of years, is called your case. And all of that, whether, it's, whether we talk about your reactive mind or your case, it's this sort of made-up fantasy kind of idea that you are carrying around with you all of these sort of spiritual chains, very much like, or I, it's an easy analogy for me to draw on, to mention the Christmas Carol and Jacob Marley and this guy who shows up at Scrooge's place with all these chains of all of the sins that he, that he uh, committed during his life. Well, imagine that kind of thing, but imagine about 20 tons of chains that you are carrying around with you. And that is more analogous to how Scientologists think about how much case you actually have. It's just tons and tons of this stuff. And it is an actual physical uh, thing. It is energy that you can't see or, or detect, but that the e-meter is supposedly registering on. That's what Scientologists think that needle is moving around. That's why they think it's moving around, is because it's registering the energy of your case. It's not. The e-meter responds to uh, electronic resistance over the surface of your skin. So it's just measuring electrical resistance, sweat, micro tensions of your muscles, things like that. But Scientologists are trained to believe that the movements of the e-meter and the needle on that dial indicate that your case is in re-stimulation, meaning that they are bringing back into the present time your trauma, your, your case, uh, from years and years and years and years ago. And that trauma registers on the e-meter, okay? Now, that all being sort of underlying theory here, the idea is that if you start resisting the process, if you go into an auditing session perfectly willing to have a session, and you have already been told kind of basically what's going on in auditing, or you're told at the beginning of the session, you're shown various L. Ron Hubbard issues and references that describe what the auditing process is and what's expected of you as a preclear. And this is a very long and involved process. Educating the preclear is very much a part of the Scientology auditing procedure. If you don't understand what's going on and you don't understand what's expected of you, then you're not going to have a very successful auditing session because you basically, what I think of as that, that education is that it's kind of priming because you're set up with expectations of what's supposed to happen. You notice that this kind of thing doesn't go on in a psychological counseling session or therapy. They're not sitting there giving you their whole education. They are applying treatment modalities to you, and you may or may not kind of follow along with what's going on. Um, in an auditing session, you are expected to understand what the hell's happening and why you're being asked all the questions and all of that. So 
so that you meet expectations. You get to the end of the process and you know, oh, I'm supposed to have some kind of an epiphany or a realization and I'm supposed to feel better and my needle is supposed to be floating. That indicates the end of the process and that, that kind of thing. So, so preclears are generally educated on what is expected of them and what's going to kind of happen in the auditing session. So that all being set up as, the, as sort of the framework of what's going on, it is expected that you are going to exhibit indications of your past trauma, that it's going to come right into the auditing session and you are going to have headaches or feel uncomfortable. Hubbard talks about people assuming a fetal position on the floor in the middle of engrams that they were running of their birth. And they recreate the entire procedure right in front of them. Their body is just, it's all contorted and rolling around on the floor and all kinds of crazy stuff Hubbard talked about. And that's mostly out of the 1950s. You don't see that kind of thing or expect that sort of thing too much these days in Scientology. But back in the day, they sure did. And in the days of Dianetics, you know, you had people doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Now... Getting back, so, so that being also part of the setup, that it's expected that during the auditing session, you're going to feel like shit. You're going to feel awful. You're going to have all this stuff coming in on you, and it might well be that it becomes so uncomfortable, so traumatizing for you that you don't want to deal with it. You don't want to face it. You don't want to have to have anything to do with it. Well, you're told, and the auditing theory is that if whatever turns it on whatever got those things rolling and, and, and riled up in the first place, we'll turn it off. So if it started in the process, it will, the only way to get through it is to continue the process and keep going. So there are those three golden rules of Scientology auditing, which is what turns it on will turn it off. The way out is the way through and get the PC through it. That's the attitude that the auditor has. He's trained into it. This is indoctrination. And they are told because of all these reasons about the auditor and the e-meter and the case and the trauma and all of that and the way processing works, auditors are trained to expect that things are going to get rough or at least that there's a possibility that things are going to get rough. And there's even this idea in Scientology that if things don't get rough from time to time, you're really not making very good progress. So it's actually expected or anticipated by the auditor that the preclear is going to become very resistive, is going to be pushing back quite hard, is not going to want to do it, and is in fact might even want to get up and walk out. In order to prevent that from happening, see, the auditor believes that, that, that the cardinal sin in starting a process is not finishing it. So if the preclear is like, yeah, no, I don't want to do this anymore, and the auditor goes, okay, I understand, but what turns it on will turn it off. Let's get through this. And the preclear goes, fuck that. No, I don't want to get through it. I want out. The auditor's job is to verbally first try to convince the preclear to stay and get through it. Keep going. And they have an array of tools or ways that they might go about convincing somebody to stay in the room and keep going. My dad was uh, an auditor, and he audited thousands of hours on people. And he related a story one time that he was doing a Scientology sec check, a security check, on somebody. So he was asking them for their, you know, their deep, dark secrets. And this person threw the cans down and just stood up and went over to the window and was just like, I ain't doing this anymore. No, fuck this. I'm not. I'm done. I'm out. And my dad 
being in control of the room because the door to leave was behind him, said to this man, well, okay, I mean, you can stand at that window all day, but you know, you are being charged by the hour for this and I got all day. I ain't got nothing else to do but be here in this room. So, you know, and the pre-clear was like, ugh, right? And sat down and got through the confessional. Um, if the pre-clear is not convinced verbally and tries to actually leave the room, go past the auditor, get to the door and get out, the auditor is trained to literally stand up, manhandle the pre-clear, grab him by the shoulders, turn him or her around, manhandle them back into the chair, put the cans in their hands if they're holding the cans for an e-metered auditing, and then go sit back down and carry on the process. And to continue doing that as many times as necessary to get the pre-clear through the process. And this is why I say that the pre-clear, the person receiving auditing in that room, is the least important part of what's going on in that room. What the pre-clear has to say, what the pre-clear thinks, what the pre-clear's reactions are, don't matter. The auditor doesn't care. His job is to run a process and get that process done. And that's his priority. And it's assumed, because of everything I've already told you, that that's a good thing to do, that that's in fact the best thing you could possibly do for this person. It's a very much in, the, in alignment with or in the same vein as a sort of tough love approach to therapy um, because they consider that Scientology auditing is therapeutic. It's, it's not really, but they, they say that it is. And you can have limited gains with it. I'm not saying that, it just, that nobody ever got anything out of it. But, you know, as I've gone over in, in, at length with John Atack most recently in our podcast about how Scientology auditing is bad for you, we talk about the fact that it is trans-inducing and there is suggestion and there are commands issued that will act like commands outside of the auditing session because of the hypnosis that's going on. It's, it's not good for you. This is, an, this is a procedure that was designed to undermine a person's certainty, self-image, and ego and replace them with Hubbard's ideas of how people are supposed to be and turn them into Followers, addicted followers who are just chasing that high of the auditing sessions, you know, end results, the euphoria that one experiences at the end of a session. And one does not always experience that. Sometimes it's faked. Sometimes it's, oh, I'm primed. I'm, you know, I'm supposed to produce this end result. Okay, I'm done with this. I want to get out of here. Well, you know, yeah, okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. Remembering that time when I was four. Oh, boy. I feel so much better now. I, this, this is great, you know, and you kind of learn how to get yourself or extricated from these auditing sessions by cooperating, not by resisting. And of course, remember that the Scientology is pre-clear. The guy who's sitting there paying all the money for the auditing is a believer. These are not people who are sitting there actively resisting the process, they are also convinced before they even walk in that room that there is this case, this reactive mind. It's real. And they got to deal with it. And this is the way to do it. So it might be painful. It might be hard. It might be very traumatizing to remember things that are traumatizing. But they'll do it 
because they believe that by continuing to get through the process, they are blowing the charge, okay? This electrical field, this, this energy is called charge. And when you get done with an auditing process, supposedly what happens is you are actually dissipating and erasing forever. You're destroying that charge. Hubbard actually makes the claim that, this, that the law of conservation of energy in the physical universe is actually false and that auditing disproves it because they destroy energy all the time in the auditing sessions. Just balderdash. I mean, it's just not a nonsensical claim, but Hubbard claims it. So anyway, I hope I'm giving you a bit more of a picture here of what the people involved in an auditing session actually think about it. So they're prepared to go in there and, you know, and just get to it and slog their way through. And pre-clears become adapted to or used to this idea that they're going to go in session, go through some shit, and come out the other side feeling better. That's the general anatomy of any auditing session is you go in, you feel okay, you get set up, you start the session with a floating needle so anything you're bringing in with you is kind of left outside of the room and your present time problems or your upsets with other people or any other attention you have on anything else outside of the auditing session is not happening when you're in the session. Um, Hubbard says that the definition of a pre-clear who is in session, who is there totally ready to go is someone who is interested in his own case and is willing to talk to the auditor. That's the definition of being in session from a pre-clears perspective. So it's expected that the auditor will get the pre-clear in session and keep him in session during the entire process. But if the pre-clear were to go out of session, in other words, not be interested in his own case, not willing to talk to the auditor, then it's the auditor's job to get the preclear back into session. I hope that all makes sense. I am throwing some Scientology jargon at you here, but this is, these, this, is the, this is the fundamental to how the Scientology con actually works, is these auditing sessions and the euphoric states that are produced as a result of it. So, um, so it's pretty powerful stuff. And people pay, you know, hundreds, even thousands of dollars an hour for the privilege of going into these sessions and, and basically being abused psychologically, spiritually. It's, it's, it's absolutely spiritual abuse. But, you know, that's what Scientologists are sort of brainwashed to think is a therapeutic process. It's so backwards, it's hard to explain or understand really, because it's so not what it pretends to be. And yet, you know, you and I out here in the real world kind of understand that. In the Scientology bubble world, it's, it's opposite world. It's completely different. They think that, that something that's traumatizing you is helping you and is therapeutic for you. That's how backwards it is. And that's why that indoctrination is so necessary and powerful, because a preclear who is indoctrinated to believe this will allow themselves to be abused, will allow themselves to sit for hours on end in these rooms just going to town, right? And it's a given, to answer a few more parts of your question here, it is a given that 
the pre-clear is going to turn his phone off, put it in his purse or wallet or what, you know, pocket or whatever phone is, is absolutely positively not going to be turned on during an auditing session. There is no way that if you're a pre-clear in a session that you're going to be allowed to have an, an active, you know, online phone in the middle of a session, there are to be no outside distractions. Now, every couple hours, the auditors, you know, are people too. They want to eat. They need to go to the bathroom. They need to go get a drink of water. So they take breaks. You know, there are breaks during auditing sessions. And in fact, there are meal breaks. If you start an auditing session at 10 a.m. and you get to noon and the process is not yet done, you get it to what's called a flat point, a place where the pre-clear is not exactly done, but they're not in the middle of rolling around on the floor in the fetal position, right? They're doing okay. And you go, okay, well, we look like we're at a good, pretty good point here. Let's go ahead and take a break for lunch or for dinner, or let's take a snack break or something if it's middle of the afternoon. But the priority is get through the session. And if the pre-clear is sitting there rolling around on the floor, they ain't taking any breaks. If the pre-clear is sitting in the chair all passed out, that's not the time they're going to be taking a break. So you got to get to that flat point in order to do that. And sometimes that happens and sometimes it doesn't. And then the auditor just has to push on through. And this is the reason, by the way, that auditors will sit in a chair and stare at somebody else for hours on end is because they're trying to get themselves used to the idea of what it feels like to sit in a chair for hours and hours because they might well be called upon to do exactly that in delivering an auditing session. You really never know when you go into an auditing session what's going to happen. And if it's a new pre-clear that you've never audited before, oh boy, you really don't know. So you have to be prepared for anything as an auditor. And so auditors consider themselves these savior figures who are, who are bringing people in to enlightenment, to a, to a new high state of spiritual awareness and ability by running these processes. So the auditors believe that what they are doing is the absolute best possible thing they could ever do for this person sitting in front of them. Auditing, as far as a Scientology auditor is concerned, is better than any amount of hours just listening to somebody and their complaints or their problems or their issues or their trauma they think psychoanalysis is for the birds. They think any kind of therapy, talk therapy, uh, psychological counseling, they think all that stuff is crap, that they've got the one line, which is auditing, that is going to actually help and handle the person in front of them. So the auditor is convinced that this tough love abuse kind of situation that they have gotten themselves into is actually a savior role and is a really good position to be in and that they are really, truly, and, and ultimately helping this person in front of them. And that's what convinces them to stand up and grab this guy or girl by the shoulders and throw them back in the chair and say, you're going to cooperate and you're going to get through this process. And I'm not going to hear anything more about it. And Hubbard advises that you talk to the preclears like that if things get rough. He gives that as an example in a lecture one time, and there are many examples of, of uh, suggestions Hubbard makes that you get rough with the preclear. You know, you got to give him a what for. It's like, look, man, we're going to get through this process, and we're not going to mess around, so you better start cooperating. 
You know, it's that kind of attitude sometimes if the, if the, if the knives come out, right? If things get, start getting really rough, then the auditor has to lay down the law because ultimately the auditor is held responsible for the session. If the pre-clerk gets up and takes off and leaves, that auditor is for it, man. He is in so much trouble. If he doesn't go back and get that guy, and that means going to his house, going to his place of work, doing whatever is necessary to get that guy back. If the auditor doesn't do that, the auditor is in an all kinds of trouble. So the auditor is the one who is ultimately held responsible for whether that pre-clearer has that euphoric experience, that awe experience, excuse me, experience. And uh, that's another reason why the auditors can be and act so insistent that what turns a dot will turn it off and uh, the way out is the way through. So I hope that gives a much more complete answer for you, a lot more data for you as to what Scientology auditing is all about and why it's conducted the way that it is. And there you go. Michael Yoder, in the lecture to auditors, Clearing Congress series, LRH talked about being able to process people in comas and otherwise unconscious people. Have you ever heard about this practice as ridiculous and impossible as it sounds? In the same lecture, he talked about the motivator sequence. Can you explain what that is? LRH was, as usual, vague and incoherent. Okay, um, yeah, I'll be real quick about this one, Mike. Uh, so auditing unconscious people is basically considered an assist in Scientology in the same way that you have those touch assists and nerve assists and these, this whole battery of assists that they have, there is the unconscious person assist where you try to get the person to wake up, come around by communicating with them and getting, you grab their hand and you give them commands. You know, you say that here's this person laying in a hospital bed, imagine, and the Scientology minister or auditor comes up and he thinks he's going to be able to get this guy out of being unconscious by taking his hand by the wrist and saying, okay, I'm going to run this assist on you. There's the guy laying there unconscious. And the auditor talks to him as though he can sense or hear what the auditor is saying. It's assumed that the Thetan, the spirit, is very much awake and there and paying attention, even if the body is knocked out. So the auditor will grab the hand again and say, okay, I'm going to do this assist on you. And uh, basically, we'll start telling the guy, if I remember this right, it's like sort of a, of a um, okay, feel your hand. And then he'll take the hand and, and grab it and, you know, touch the guy's shoulder or chest or stomach or arm or, you know, uh, whatever, where, you know, her head or her ears or something. But it's the auditor controlling the pre-clear, the, the, the unconscious person's hand. And uh, they think that by doing this process, you are getting the Thetan back in communication with the body. And this will enable the body to more rapidly heal or deal with itself because ultimately in Scientology, the Thetan is all-powerful. So the idea is that the Thetan can command the body, control the body, wake the body up if it wants to. And if it's not doing so, it's simply not in good enough communication with the body or something like that. And so you have these unconscious person assists that are supposed to sort of help wake the person up. Um, you know, has any testing of any kind ever been done on this to verify that any of this is true? Of course not. Scientologists just assume that this is all true because L. Ron Hubbard said so. And 
Then you asked about the motivator sequence. Okay, quite simply, L. Ron Hubbard describes a sequence of actions in Scientology called the overt motivator sequence. And the way this goes is you, okay, let's have Joe and Bill, okay? And one fine day, maybe these are kids on the playground. Maybe these are people in real life. Who knows, right? These are just two people. And one fine day, Joe hurts Bill out of nowhere, just impulsively, rashly, impishly, childishly, evilly, for whatever motivation, out of nowhere, Joe smacks Bill, okay? Just walks up to him and smacks him. Joe has committed an overt against Bill, an overt act. He hurt him. Right? He did something that he shouldn't have done that was damaging or destructive. That's what an overt is. It's a destructive act. So he didn't have any reason to do that. Right? His reasoning was completely in his own head. It was just selfish, you know, ego-driven, whatever. So Bill now has this overt committed against him. The way, this, the way Hubbard says this works is that Joe now has to dream up a motivation for having committed that overt. He'll just make something up because it can't be that he knows he just did this, this awful thing for no good reason. He has to justify it to himself, and that justifier becomes a, what's called a motivator. It's he's going to imagine or dream up something that Bill did to him that justifies him coming up and smacking Bill. A motivator is actually supposed to be an overt all by itself. It's supposed to be something that Bill did to Joe, not just Bill's existence. That's really not a motivator. A real motivator is Bill did something to Joe that motivated Joe to go slap him. And because Bill didn't do that, Joe has to imagine that he did. And so Joe will make something up. Oh, Bill took money from me. Bill slept with my wife. Bill is just a, you know, is, is this horrible, awful person because he complained about me at work. I mean, you, you know, there's a million variations of what Joe might imagine Bill did to him that would motivate Joe going and slapping him. Uh, and that motivator is itself an overt, okay, from different perspectives. So I hope that's clear. It's, it's a little weird. Um, it's not that weird. I mean, it is pretty much psychology 101 that if people do bad things to other people, they're going to dream up reasons why. We see it all the time. This is just couched in Scientology language, overt motivators, etc. But Hubbard's, Hubbard uh, rails quite a bit on this overt motivator sequence and says it's really the makeup of human relationships and that it has an awful lot to do with why people are so screwed up because they'll accumulate overts, accumulate motivators. They're just making up reasons, delusionary reasons, why these overts are okay. And this is sort of, Hubbard claims this is sort of the wolf and warp of human relationships. And 
you know, to a degree, he's got some points there, but it's not something Hubbard <laughs> exactly observed uh, for the first time ever. I mean, this is something that's been known about for a very long time in psychology. So, again, not exactly original thinking, but original labeling and emphasis. This is the important thing about Scientology that I want to be clear about sometimes. It's not that every single thing that Hubbard said was a lie or is just blatantly untrue, or is just, you know, completely destructive. Hubbard took psychological concepts or spiritual concepts or religious concepts that are true, and he sort of bends them to his will and overemphasizes or exaggerates the importance of them. And this is one of the things that is so wrong with Scientology is it's not that everything in Scientology is totally false, but the emphasis the priority of the information is all out of whack. And that itself can be a control mechanism and a trauma-inducing mechanism. So that's a part of the anatomy of, of why Scientology is not so great. So there you go. Anthony Stenson. I'm a bodybuilder slash nutrition enthusiast. I understand being indoctrinated by the quote-unquote tech. I still don't understand how someone can look at LRH even in his prime, and think, I want to be just like this guy. He was balding, always overweight, had a very ugly-looking face, not that great of a speaker, and just overall looked like a person I'm afraid to look like when I get old. This man is supposed to be the example of the highest OT, but yet couldn't get his meat body to be even moderately attractive. When you were in Scientology, did these thoughts about his looks or obesity ever come to your mind? Anthony, they did not, and I'm going to tell you why. Because Scientology really doesn't give a crap about your body. It doesn't care. Nobody in Scientology really cares about your body. What they care about is your actions, your deeds, your words, your loyalty to Scientology especially is at the top of the list. But with Hubbard, Hubbard is the epitome in Scientology of a spiritual OT because of the deeds that he has done, the legendary deeds he has done, you see. Hubbard tells stories about, you know, f uh, having a car accident and teleporting kind of basically out of the car or being able to move objects with his spiritual abilities and things like that. And these were not big, bold claims. They were just kind of hinted at, inferred at here and there, just kind of throw, you know, chum to the you know, to the followers, like, oh, yeah, sure, this happened, or this happened, or this other thing happened. But it's mainly the reason why Scientologists fall in love with Hubbard is because he's the one who discovered Dianetics and Scientology. So he could look like Jabba the Hutt, and they'd still follow him, you see. It's, it's what he did that Scientologists are so enamored by, not how he looks. So the entire time I was in Scientology, Hubbard's looks, it, it never even occurred to me that that was an issue. I wasn't, I wasn't really paying attention to Elrond Hubbard that way. If somebody asked me, is he good looking, I would have said, well, no. But nobody ever asked. <laughs> it was not a thing. Um, and he's also projected as this very larger-than-life kind of adventurous, big, brawny, you know, uh, hail fellow, you know, glad to meet you kind of guy. 
So he wasn't put forward as this anatomically beautiful person. He was put forward as a genius researcher, writer, philosopher, sailor, etc. Right? That was those are the things that people admire about L. Ron Hubbard, not his looks. And it was and it's really not. Nobody gets into Scientology because they're physically attracted to L. Ron Hubbard. It's not that's not what it's about. And all the emphasis in Scientology on the fact that people's bodies really don't matter and are not really much of anything. And Hubbard originally in the 1950s and 60s was kind of big on talking up how you could be in charge of and control your body, alter your body, make your body look better and that kind of thing. But all that kind of fell by the wayside and the emphasis went much, much, much more onto the spirituality. And Hubbard later in his later issues was talking about how people need to get off of this obsession with their bodies and how bodies are a dime a dozen and who cares, right? And these, and he even made fun of bodybuilders. He was like, what are these people doing? This is ridiculous. Why are you building up a body with all this muscle? What's that supposed to do? You know, he was, he was actually very invalidative of that. Uh, he wasn't necessarily invalidative of taking good care of yourself. He did offer up some suggestions as to how to eat right, uh, you know, sleep well, that kind of thing. There's advice in the Way to Happiness book about, you know, eating, uh, drinking temperately, that kind of thing, even though Hubbard himself didn't follow any of that advice. But in the Scientology world, he didn't have to. He was, you know, this Superman. So... Uh, none of the rules really apply to him, right? It's always that way in cults. The cult leader is always the exception to all the rules. So I hope that gives a little bit of clarity on, on the viewpoint of L. Ron Hubbard within Scientology. There you go. Jonathan Perry. Since Tom Cruise has been coming up a lot, I have thought of another question about him. His relationship with Nicole Kidman and Katie Holmes and his daughter failed. I guess you can say they were PTS, but it seemed like most of them tried to participate in Scientology. If Tom Cruise was not a celebrity and he was in the same situation, wouldn't he be blamed for being PTS himself? Being an OT8, he can't handle his personal problems. He could ride a motorcycle or fly in the back of an F-18, but what is he doing to clear the planet anymore? He doesn't sound like a very good Scientologist to me. I wonder if he got sponsored and never had to pay for Scientology services at all just for the marketing value of his name. How could they ask Tom Cruise for money? Jonathan, I'm sorry, but I'm really going to push back on just about everything in your question here because Tom Cruise is the epitome, as far as all Scientologists are concerned, of exactly what a successful Scientologist living in the world should be doing. Tom Cruise is the picture of success to every single person on this planet. He is a god among celebrities as far as celebrities are concerned and as far as the general public is concerned. He can do no wrong. He just made a billion-dollar movie. And the idea that Tom Cruise isn't paying money to Scientology for the privilege of doing Scientology is absolutely ridiculous. Of course he is. He's been paying Church of Scientology millions and millions and millions of dollars uh, he just he just throws money at them, right? His services are the least of his concerns, and his money is certainly the least of his concern. So he's got he's got money to burn. It's not it's not a problem asking Tom Cruise for money, but that doesn't mean that every Tom, Dick, and Harry in Scientology is running over to Tom Cruise's house and regging him for services. Obviously, as the world's top celebrity or one of them, 
Tom Cruise is handled with very specific people in very specific ways. And so those people are going to get money out of him, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not done the same way that they would do it with some Joe Schmo who comes in with, you know, 50 or a hundred thousand dollars in their bank account. They'll clean that bank account. No problem. Tom Cruise has the potential to make the church of Scientology hundreds of millions of dollars just by going on TV and talking favorably about it. And I'm pretty sure David Miscavige's teeth are gnashing at the fact that Tom doesn't do that anymore. But it's kind of understood because Tom Cruise could not be the epitome of a successful Scientologist, ironically, if he kept talking about Scientology. It was when he tried to get out and, you know, come out as a Scientologist and really start talking to people the way he really talks to people, like the Matt Lauer interview and the jumping up and down on Oprah's couch. That's Tom Cruise. That's who he really is. He's nuts. But, but, you know, I keep saying this, but it's like it just doesn't get through to people because they think that the guy has this winning smile. He's so charismatic. He's so productive. That's the thing that impresses people about Tom Cruise is the guy can work his ass off. So what? I mean, at the end of the day, he's a hard worker. But that, and, and Scientologists idolize that. Sea Org members idolize that. David Miscavige sure takes advantage of it. And the world at large admires Tom Cruise for his work ethic and for the, the products he produces, the movies he makes, right? I think they're shit, but that's just me, right? There's a small number of people on social media who respond favorably when I post negatively about Tom Cruise. But most people couldn't care less about Tom Cruise's personal life, the, the, the monster that he is. And the fact that he terrorizes his family, tortures, you know, his inner circle, uh, is a complete dickhead to everybody around him in reality. Um, you know, they put up with it because uh, they, they give him a pass, rather, I should say, on all of that because he's got a winning smile, he's charismatic, and he entertains them. And people basically are pretty shallow when it comes to their entertainment needs. And I'm going to be judgmental as, and harsh as hell about this uh, because I, because it actually pisses me off. It's the number one reason, I believe, why cult leaders in general get a pass. I mean, why did Harvey Weinstein get away with what he got away with for so many years? It's because he entertains people and he makes money hand over fist, or at least he used to. He did, right? And when people are making you rich... The last thing you're going to do is tear them down, right? And that's Tom Cruise with Scientology. That's Tom Cruise with the rest of the world. There's an awful lot of people making an awful lot of money because of Tom Cruise. Lots and lots of people. And then there's lots and lots and lots of other people who just don't care what a monster the man is. He entertains them. It's sick. It's a little disgusting, actually. But it's the state of the world that we live in. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. So, uh, yeah. So anyway, I don't know. That's my response to your question, Jonathan. I, um, not sure what else to say there. Never in. I have a question about why Scientologists are so reluctant to talk about the role that space aliens play in Scientology's religious cosmology. I suppose maybe they don't want their beliefs to seem weird, and I know that the OT3 Xenu material is confidential, so that only 5% or so of Scientologists even know about it. 
and even the minority who do know about it are forbidden to talk about it. But there are clearly public sources in which non-confidential extraterrestrial material is available. Obvious examples would be A History of Man, 1952, which alludes to invaders and the use of Thetan traps, and Have You Lived Before This Life, which discusses past lives as extraterrestrials. There are also some audio tapes in which Hubbard makes allusions to nefarious ET plots to mess with us with foreign mental implants and stuff of that nature. I don't know which, if any of these materials are confidential. I know they tend to use the thought-stopping cliche of, there are no aliens, only thetans, when confronted with this question. Is this just an attempt to deflect so they don't have to have an uncomfortable conversation, or is it also partially a sincere attempt to emphasize Hubbard's idealistic, as opposed to materialistic, metaphysics, so that we don't focus on material bodies, but on the fact that we are all non-physical beings? Never in this great question, actually, and you've pretty much actually correctly answered it yourself in the, uh, in the question. Because as far as my experience of this goes, and I was one of those people who, for years after I got out of Scientology, resisted the whole alien thing. And was kind of like, yeah, no, it's Thetans, not aliens, right? I even said that. And it was actually Tony Ortega who had to write a whole article about this to kind of adjust my head on it and go, oh, God, he's right. It is aliens. And the reason why I found it uncomfortable, and I believe a lot of other Scientologists do too, I, you know, I can't project myself on everybody, but I think the reason why is because the word alien brings to mind monsters, non-human forms, uh, you know, something strange, unusual, dangerous, evil. You know, alien is a word that has a lot of baggage connected with it. And when you start talking about how we're all space aliens, you know, things get a little bit crazy real fast. People start imagining, you know, invaders from Mars and, and uh, Plan 9 from outer space and crap like that, right? And Hubbard's view of extraterrestrial life and space opera, as he called it, was much more in the vein of the Buck Rogers kind of science fiction uh, fantasy stories that you'd see in Pulp Fiction. So you have space battles and spaceships. And, you know, one thing that Scientologists just glommed onto and was a very, very popular in the 70s and 80s were the E.E. E. Doc Smith uh, Lensman series. Scientologists all over the place in my world thought those books represented exactly what space opera looks like and sounds and feels like. And that's all about human bodies, humanoid-looking bodies in space. And so to a degree, Scientologists kind of think about space opera kind of Star Wars-y, Buck Rogers kind of way. So it's humans in space, right? And maybe humans didn't originate on planet Earth and evolve here. I mean, there is this concept in Scientology that evolution is just an implant. It's a fantasy. It's not real. And humans were brought here. So did people come from this planet? Maybe, maybe not, right? But as far as Scientologists are concerned, they don't think about human bodies from other planets as aliens, you know? It's a, the word doesn't quite connect for them. Um, so, and the other thing that you said there was the emphasis on the spirituality, right? That you are not a body and that what your body is doesn't really matter that much. And like I said in my earlier answer, it's just not important, right? We didn't pay attention to L. Ron Hubbard's body. We don't, we're not really paying a whole lot of attention to the bodies of, you know, space opera, past lives, people from other planets, etc. And I think that's why you get the pushback. It's more pushing back on 
the bad image that that creates about Scientology, more so than it's a direct attack on a belief. It's more like, well, I'm going to push back on this because if I let you get away with saying that all of us Scientologists believe in space aliens, then I'm letting you invalidate and degrade my religion or my ideas or my philosophy. And that's why I think people push back on it within Scientology. They're very PR conscious, very image conscious, and they don't want people bad-mouthing or making fun of or ridiculing their beliefs. Uh, most people don't, you know, and so that's why the whole space aliens line is kind of pushed back on pretty hard. And I don't know, that's, that's the best answer I have for you. All right, let's do some flash answers. T. Bellarina. Talking about being all in when you join Scientology, how on earth do Jewish people join? Do they have to turn against their Jewish faith and beliefs? I know a few Jewish Hollywood stars have swallowed up their garbage. No, there's nothing special about Jewish faith or belief that makes it any different than any other people who come from any other faith who come into Scientology. They are told right at the beginning on the opening gates that Scientology is non-denominational, that you can be a Christian, uh, Islam follower, uh, Muslim in other words, uh, a Buddhist, a Confucianist, a Hindu. You can be anything and come into Scientology. And, and the PR line at the lower levels of Scientology is we're not going to mess with your faith or beliefs and we don't touch God. So don't worry about it. You know, if you want to keep going to church on Sunday and come in and do your auditing. That's what we want. No problem. And it's only as you progress through Scientology and move up the levels of Scientology that you start getting hints that maybe these other religions are just control operations trying to control you. And Scientology is trying to free you. And so maybe you should move away from that because that those other faiths are basically just full of lies and nonsense. And that's kind of how it progresses in Scientology. So there's nothing, nothing special or unique about, about Jewish Scientologists. Jesse Davis. I was wondering if you could explain the impact that Cruz's new Top Gun movie will have within Scientology. Will David Miscavige attribute the box office success to Scientology or use it as evidence of Scientology's dissemination? Will there be new initiatives pushed because of it? How will the Scientology layman view it? Do you think a critical mass of people who understand Scientology's abuses and Tom Cruise's complicity in that abuse will ever be reached to the point where the general public will no longer support him as an actor and therefore no longer watch his movies? Thanks. Hey, Jesse, I guess I threw this in here and then answered it earlier a little bit in that uh, stuff about Tom Cruise. But just to give a flash answer on this, because these are a great series of questions, um, Scientology is absolutely going to take full credit for Tom Cruise's success because Tom Cruise is a Scientologist. And of course, Scientologists like Tom Cruise can't have anything but success, right? You remember the hits, you forget all the failures. That's the classic human response to things. And, and it's no different with Tom Cruise and Scientologists. They will look at his success and go, well, of course, awesome. He's an OT. That's what I aspire to. That's what I want to be. And they will think that they can achieve it because they're all in Scientology. And that that is the secret sauce that gives Tom Cruise his specialness and ability. Um, and then as far as the critical mass of people understanding Scientology, no, nah, not at all. Not even remotely. We're not even close to that. Uh, the responses I see on social media to the limited number of posts I've put up about Tom Cruise have come back with, uh, yeah, we know he's an asshole. He's a monster. He's a dick. He's a this. He's a that. We don't care. We don't care. 
right? For the most part, people don't care. And that's pretty, like I said earlier, that's pretty sick. It's pretty disgusting to me personally. I don't look at the world that way, but a lot of people do. They are very, very shallow. Um, there are unfortunately, and I'm being harsh and judgmental here, I am, but there are an awful lot of very shallow thinkers out there. And if it doesn't touch them, they don't care. And if you want to know why it is that cults like the Moonies, the JWs, um, the, you know, any of these groups, North Korea, I mean, why do these things exist? Because people put up with it. That's why. Because people would rather go along with than push back, right? It takes too much energy. It's too hard. It's too dangerous. It's too threatening, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so people don't take a stand even when they know something's wrong. And that's my flash answer, so I hope that doesn't come across as too bitter. It's just a little harsh uh, assessment of people, but it's based on, you know, empirical evidence. So there you go. All right. So <laughs> uh, despite that last answer, I hope the show in general was entertaining, informative, and educational for you guys. And I hope that you will support the channel through Patreon, PayPal, whatever, if you are enjoying my content and it is helping you in some fashion. I understand that I am, that my workout is, my work rather, is helping a lot of people. We are seeing a decline in Scientology. We are seeing massive, by the way, more than I even knew. Every time I hear from people inside the church, I am finding out more and more about how our work, Leah, Mike, Tony, me, Karen, all of us, Aaron, everybody, all of us together have created change within the Church of Scientology. There's no more RPF. There's forced abortions are pretty much a thing of the past. Uh, I'm not saying it never happens, but it's way down, right? People can leave. Um, it, there's a lot of changes that have happened internally in Scientology in terms of their abuses because of what we've been doing to expose them. And that's, that's you guys, that's me, that's all of us, right, working to do that. So, um, so we should, you know, give ourselves a little uh, acknowledgement for that. And I wanted to let you guys know. That's uh, what this work is doing. And of course, I hope my work is touching people of other cults and, and belief systems. And I, in fact, I know it is because uh, I hear from you guys. And so, um, so I hope that this work continues to do that and that I continue to be able to uh, do this work of helping people out of these destructive cults. And I want you guys to know that there's a lot of things that go on in my life behind the scenes that I cannot ever tell you about because I'm respecting people's confidentiality or their privacy and coming out of these destructive cult situations, but I'm helping them, I'm helping their family. I, I am available for consultation if that's something that you guys, uh, if that's something that you as an individual need. I do charge for that, but I am available for that. And I wanted you guys to know about that, right? Because it's not something I talk about a lot uh, for obvious reasons. Um, but I probably should talk about that a little bit more just so you guys know that when you support this channel, you're not just supporting me making some videos. This is, this is my life work. This is what I do. And I spend an awful lot of time in my day doing it. So anyway, like I said, I just realized I've never really put that out there and I should. So thanks very much for coming around and watching me blabber on here like I have. I very much appreciate your support and your viewership, and I will see you next week. Bye-bye.